Hello and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I'm your host, Titus, and today in our postmodern conservative series, I am joined by one of my intellectual political allies, Brandon Weikert, who's got a new book out called Winning Space. We will be having a wide-ranging conversation on technology, policy, culture, a, a national purpose for America, and a national policy that unites both the people and the politicians and gets through the bureaucracies in D.C., a new imperative to keep America dominant in space. And at the same time, of course, we'll be addressing the possibility of a new Cold War of a strange kind with China, since there is so much more economic cooperation, but so much more technological competition at the same time. This will be our conversation for today and a new departure for our series of conversation about politics in America in 2020. Now, first of all, Brandon, it's the first time you're on the podcast. It's the first time really we have a conversation. I'm used to reading you and <laughs> chatting with you online. It's great to talk to you and it's great to talk about this book. It's just such a wonderful thing to read. Some passages are like a thriller, sci-fi. Some passages are like reading policy briefings, executive summaries. You feel that you're somewhere in the executive branch all of a sudden. Some it's like news you've never heard of, but that's fascinating. So it's a very interesting combination. But it's also a track that has a unity of purpose to say this is the danger and this is the opportunity for American strategy on space. So I recommend to people, Brandon Weikert, Winning Space. Go buy, just hop on Amazon. It's out on September 15. Do yourself a favor. You will love reading this. It's tailor-made for men. It's, uh, <laughs> but of course, before we get to the discussion of the book, Brandon, please introduce yourself for our audience and tell us about your experience and what got you to write this book in the first place. Well, uh, thank you for having me, and it's nice to talk to you. And I will say, actually, um, so far, my wife also loves the book, you know, so I think it's also for uh, any women interested in these issues as well. But it is tailor-made for men. I think this is a guy story. And uh, my background is I worked for several years on Capitol Hill. I spent a lot of time at briefings actually related to this issue. And as I say in the book, the starting off point for this book was was a briefing on my first day in which none of the elected people really wanted to attend. A few did from both parties, but it was a group of retired Air Force and uh, NASA people who came, this is around 2013, and they started briefing us on the threats to our satellites, and really nobody cared. And I kind of felt like this is what it must have been like had we caught the carriers from Japan on their way to Pearl Harbor, and nobody cared. Nobody took it seriously. That was sort of the genesis of this book all the way back in 2013. And from there, I did my master's studies at the Institute of World Politics, which is a uh, graduate school tailored for mid-career people in national security, both in the legislative branch and the executive branch of the U.S. federal government, and I continued to study and be sort of the expert on national security space issues at that institution. While I was there, I went and studied at Oxford for a period of time. I was an associate member of uh, New College, and I focused on the decline of Imperial Britain from 1947 to 1997 under the tutelage of the great Dr. Richard Coggins. Then I went in and uh, became sort of a consultant and advisor for for political campaigns, but also, you know, the DOD brings me out routinely to talk about emerging technology and sort of the impacts they'll have on geopolitics. 
I've advised for a long time various political campaigns, usually for the Republican Party. That's sort of my background. I'm kind of this policy analyst. I have a website, theweichertreport.com, W-E-I-C-H-E-R-T report.com. I also write for American Greatness. I'm a contributing editor there. I've now started appearing in the Washington Times pretty regularly. And I write on these issues, national security, emerging tech, geopolitics. Occasionally, I'll write on Congress. And this book is sort of the apotheosis of the last six years of my professional and academic life. Yes, indeed. You get in the book this sense that you come from two different kinds of career tracks, actually. You're a young guy and things have changed. Career tracks have changed and it's possible to have these mixes now. And indeed, it's perhaps necessary. Yeah. One moment you're doing the wonky stuff on weapon (laughs) systems or treatises. The next moment you're doing grand strategy stuff or just the political press doing opinion on what it is that we're looking to do here. And that's a good fit, I think, for readers in the world of the Internet. It'll feel very familiar. That, I think, will also shown in our conversation. But we have to tell our audience, you have a wide-ranging book. There are so many topics covered there because you wanted to teach people who is in space, who is getting into space, small countries, large countries, American allies and American enemies alike. And so people will go away from this with a good view of what is happening in space, what has been happening, what is likely to be happening over the next decade from the promising to the speculative to the very scary stuff that might cripple American power. We'll only be dealing with a specific matter that you address at some length. Yeah. The possible new Cold War with China. China is now a more impressive power than America. And that is not because it's more powerful, but because America seems decadent or powerless to stop Chinese power. So let's talk about the elements of American power in space and the weaknesses there. And then we'll move on to the elements and weaknesses of Chinese power. Sure. Tell us, first of all, about the satellite systems, about the civilian and military aspects of American involvement in space and what has been holding America back, what crippled innovation and space domination. Yeah, so beginning in the 1970s, the United States started to increasingly depend on satellite constellations, not just for military operations, but as you know, for basically civilian life itself. And so much so that today now, we can't do anything in our society without using satellites on some level. You know, you can't text on your phone, you can't go to the gas station and do a transaction without your signals passing into space. There are, I think it's something like a trillion dollars in economic transactions done daily around the world. A lot of that has to do with the U.S. satellite constellations, uh, particularly with Wall Street and a lot of the trades that go on. They're specifically timed. The timing of the transactions occurs thanks to satellite constellations. The U.S. military is mostly an expeditionary force, meaning that we deploy our forces globally over the horizon, far removed from our territorial waters. We send them to Europe. We send them to Asia. We send them, you know, South America, in some cases, Africa. And so the frontier for America has largely been expanded well beyond its physical territory. 
that has largely been made possible in terms of the coordination and kind of keeping our forces linked together, give them surveillance, give them the early missile warning. That has all been provided for by satellite and the synchronization that satellites allow. Our enemies know this. And paradoxically, as we've become inextricably linked to these systems in orbit, we haven't done much to defend them. In the 90s in particular, when the Cold War ended and the Soviet Union fell, that was sort of the opportunity we had to really enhance our position vis-a-vis our enemies on Earth, and we didn't. And that was largely because we didn't think we had any enemies that were technological. And the Chinese in particular watched in amazement as American forces took out Saddam Hussein's fourth largest army in the world, the Iraqi army was in 1991, and they saw how the American way of war operated, the synchronization, the precision-guided bombing. All of that was thanks to American magic, the Chinese called it. And that was all courtesy of satellites. And so beginning in 91, the Chinese in particular said, you know what, we better start figuring out a way to weaken the American advantage. And they began looking at satellites as sort of the Achilles heel. I have an article pending with Newsweek in which I refer to America's overwhelming military dominance not as an impenetrable shield behind which American prosperity and happiness grows, but actually as a Jenga tower. And the Chinese, as well as other enemies like Russia, North Korea, and Iran, but the Chinese in particular, are trying to figure out ways to pull the pieces of that Jenga tower out so that it will inevitably collapse in on itself. The critical infrastructure is those satellites. In the book, I talk about how we need to defend those satellites by making them less complex, easier to replace, because one of the biggest burdens we have is cost of launch. And so private startups like SpaceX are helping us to overcome that cost disadvantage. And we need to do more to give those new startups in the launch services sector, you know, a leg up. And then also we need to come up with strategies for defending existing American satellites. So things like launching what are known as small co-orbital satellites. We call them space stalkers. These are small satellites that either can be used to knock out enemy satellites physically, push them out of their orbit, or can be used in a defensive capacity to become bodyguard satellites for larger, more sensitive American systems in orbit, give our people more situational awareness, and be able to stop an enemy attack on our satellites should that ever come to pass in what I call a space Pearl Harbor. Because again, if you remove those satellite linkages, particularly U.S. military satellites operating in geosynchronous orbit, you've just rendered the American military on land, at sea, in air, and in the cyberspace domains deaf, dumb, and blind. And our enemies know this, and they are preparing to basically knock out those systems so that we can't defend, say, Taiwan from a Chinese attack, or we can't defend Israel from an Iranian potential attack, or South Korea from a North Korean attack, or even possibly somewhere in Eastern Europe from a Russian attack. And that's sort of the theory and the strategy behind particularly the Chinese looking at this as a possibility to really hurt the Americans, send us back to a pre-1970 style of warfare, which we're no longer conditioned to fight. Yes, exactly. America has achieved supremacy, and that is precisely what created this danger. America is spread out globally. There are powers and resources that simply cannot be moved around without destroying the system, but also they are becoming harder to defend, and it is necessary to defend them. And so we have these two components that we're talking about. On the one hand, the technology. On the other hand, America. Because of how the Cold War turned out, we ended up thinking that America equals technology. Technology equals America. 
and look at Silicon Valley, there's the proof. But right. now we're learning that it just ain't so. Yes. It is not natural that America has better technology than the Chinese. In previous right. millennia, it was the other way around, and it might happen Absolutely. that it changes again. So tell us about this. What are these changes in China, right. the investments they're making, the way right. they're thinking about the technology-state relationship and the political ambitions they are fostering and working Absolutely. on every day? Because these are not fantasies or stories. They are being done. Yeah, and that's an excellent point. And, you know, that's a large component of the book is talking about the Chinese culture of development. Beginning in the 1980s, China really worked hard after they opened themselves up to the West. You know, the misnomer in the West is that Nixon and Kissinger opened up China. That's not actually not true. Mao Zedong quite knowingly allowed China to open up to the West as part of a maneuver to give his country an advantage over what was then rapidly becoming his Soviet rivals. And ultimately, by the 1980s, his successor, Deng Xiaoping, said, we want to become, for lack of a better word, the sweatshop of the world. We'll become the workshop of the world. We'll build the things. We'll become the manufacturing hub. That coincided with this big push in the United States to offshore all of our manufacturing capability in exchange for the neoliberal notion that, hey, we're going to get rid of the old world manufacturing jobs, those dirty jobs, and the next generation we're going to train up to be the dominant knowledge economy. That way, we'll always be on top. We'll always be the innovators, and China can be the ones that just do the messy aspect of building these great innovations we come up with. Well, what happened was China did that for a while, but they never planned on remaining as the sweatshop of the world. Far from it. They had a very concerted strategy for taking that initial wave of money they made off of being the sweatshop of the world, building out a middle class, and then reinvesting the new economic energies they've just got into science, technology, engineering, and math. STEM. Since the 90s, for the last 30 years now, they've been sending their young people to go to the West, study at our universities, bring all of that knowledge back that they gleaned from us to China, set up shop there, and then be able to indigenously produce new technologies based on what they've learned to innovate in China. Oh, and by the way, now they've started in China wooing Western students to come over to China and study. My wife was a Yale genetics PhD and her cohort were all being targeted by Chinese state-owned firms to come over to China and open up a genetics lab. Do your research here and we'll pay you handsomely. We'll pay down your student loan debt. Don't worry about it. Just do all your work here. And that pattern is that throughout the tax sector, if you build it, they will come. And they're really building out this infrastructure to woo everyone to come and be dependent on China. So yeah, you mentioned several times in the book, the big field of dreams line, if you build it, they will come. Yeah. And indeed, this is the Chinese insight that if you build high capacity, high technology industries, you will simply make people rethink what they want to do and where they want to do it. If you get these new technologies, the economy will simply be reconstructed around you. Right. And I think we as Americans, we tend to forget that contrary to what many of my friends on the right believe, Silicon Valley was not a libertarian's paradise. It, it didn't just kind of come out of purely private sector ambitions. Silicon Valley was actually the foundations were built with U.S. tax investment. You know, the telecommunications revolution that we take for granted today, well, that began with initial investments from the U.S. federal government, research and development funds. 
the U.S. federal R&D budget, has precipitously declined since the 90s. Before that, from 1945 until the 1990s, the U.S. federal R&D budget was incredible. We had things like Bell Labs. We were innovating. It was really a public-private sector partnership that allowed for things like Silicon Valley to come into fruition. Basically, the government went in with tax dollars, built the infrastructure, funded some of the initial research projects, which then allowed venture capital to look at it and go, hey, the risk has been lowered because the federal government has on some level bought in. So now we can pour all of our private venture capital into these industries and we can then innovate and really create that private sector miracle that libertarians in particular tend to focus only on. Silicon Valley began very much, I think Elizabeth Mazzucato says, it's John Maynard Keynes meeting Adam Smith. And that's been very much the dynamic in the United States for building high-tech innovations that we all take for granted. That certainly is what's at play now in China with their public-private cooperatives. Now, that's not a perfect marriage, and there's certainly a lot of downsides, but thus far, the Chinese have at the very least been keeping up over the last decade with the United States in terms of high-tech R&D, which is obviously going to translate to giving us big headaches, not just in the overall tech sector, but specifically in space. Because as I say in the book, space is merely an extension of the overall high-tech sector. It's sort of where we take a lot of technologies and take them to their limits is in the space sector. And in fact, I think if there's going to be an artificial intelligence revolution, it will first actually be felt in the space sector because we're going to need AI systems to augment space missions, whether it be exploration or military in nature. We're going to need that automated ability that AI will allow us to have. And I think that's going to be one area we're going to see China actually leapfrogging us potentially is in in AI research. We're seeing them leapfrog us in quantum internet. You know, the U.S. intelligence budget is the way it is because the United States pioneered the telecommunications revolution. All the major internet nodes and communications nodes, they pass through on some level physically in the United States. And that's where the NSA is able to tap into, you know, a lot of messages. They're able to glean a lot of uh, signals intelligence this way. That is because we pioneered the telecom revolution. We pioneered the internet revolution. Now today, China's trying to pioneer the next great revolution, which is quantum internet. If they can build it out effectively, they will woo a lot of other countries because it's a next generation level technology and it's also very difficult to hack. And if we've even seen our allies like Germany get very incensed with the United States in the recent past because they caught us using the NSA to electronically eavesdrop on them. And so they're now looking at alternatives. Of course, China's going to do the same thing if they can. It's going to give them a lot of leverage geopolitically, but we could be watching the end of America's signals intelligence dominance should the Chinese be able to leapfrog us in the development of quantum technology. They've really taken on this, if you build it, they will come mentality that the Americans used to have. They're pouring in Chinese tax dollars to build out the infrastructure for the new quantum computing center in Anhui province, for the new AI research center that Google wants to use in Beijing, and on and on it goes. And so it is not a fait accompli that the United States will simply retain its edge in technological innovation, and because of that, that it will retain its dominance in space simply because we're the Americans. You know, you have to maintain it takes human agency. And that's where the Chinese are really moving toward is they want the future more than the Americans do. And they have a coordinated, concerted strategy for achieving that.
Yes, indeed. There we see the advantages of having the kind of tyranny that the Chinese Communist Party exercises. It is morally reprehensible, but that does not make it incompetent. Right. The delusions of the end of the Cold War made everybody think, as a thinker we both admire, Peter Thiel says, yes. that the world is divided between the developed and the developing world. And the right. implication there was not, as he notes, optimistic, because it meant there's nothing left to do in America. It's developed. It's done. Right. All right. the money, all the business is in the developing world. Go to China, do business there, get your technology there, help them become rich and powerful. Right. And since developing turns into developed, China will end up being another part of America. But right. it didn't turn out that way. China turned Absolutely. out to be an enemy and an attempt to replace America, as you say. A new communication technology, a new revolution in political communications in parallel with it, digital communications yeah. based on new things like quantum computing. This will be an opportunity for China right. to create another world. If they succeed, every power around them, first of all, will be tempted to use this Chinese way of life to be part of the Chinese economic way rather than the American one. Right. So we see here that everything that we took for granted, American technology, the American economy in the post-war world, all of these things could go away. Yes, we take it for granted, and our enemies are simply pressing ahead. They don't care. You know, we are not only at risk of a space Pearl Harbor with our satellites, but because of all of this technological innovation ramp up in China, and because they are really working assiduously to woo a lot of the rest of the world to become dependent on their new industrial revolution in high tech, you're now also seeing this second space race shaping up in which the Chinese very much are committed to not only getting their Taikonauts, their version of astronauts, on the moon, but on staying on the moon and strip mining it because there are a lot of mineable rare earth minerals in abundance on the moon. I would not be surprised if in the next decade, China manages to beat the United States in getting people to Mars. Maybe they won't colonize it, but I can definitely see them planting the red flag of China on the red planet before the United States can, unless the Americans really get serious about space. The Trump administration has been the most serious about space in my lifetime. I think since JFK, President Trump is the most serious political leader we've had on space. But the problem is in our system, you've got to bring Congress along and you've got to get the bureaucracy, the so-called deep state, on your side. And right now, even though Jim Bridenstine at NASA is a Trump person, he is being overwhelmed, I think, by the bureaucracy at NASA, which is quite inimical to the concept of using space. Space as yet another venue of nationalism, of national strategic competition, and it shows because we have not been going as far as we should in space, and I think that is yet another example of how the United States has fallen behind, and what a terrible world we'd be living in if one day we woke up and there are Chinese lunar colonies that are strip mining the moon, monopolizing the best real estate on the moon, at the same time that China has successfully landed astronauts on Mars. And we're still playing catch up. We're still talking about all these great things we want to do in space, but we can't do any of it because there's no political will and we're not going to be leaving Earth anytime soon. It's not a good position to be in. Yes, exactly. 
we looked down on China for a long time. Even the yes. help we gave China wittingly and unwittingly was always based on condescension and that was misguided. Yes. It was based on the assumption that nothing new will happen, that we have run out of technology. We're lucky, we're fine. But it turns right. out that you can develop new technologies and you can try out new things that will create new possibilities for supremacy. Right. Or you can even use old, you know, I have a colleague formerly at the Office of Net Assessment at the Pentagon who said, uh, you know, Brandon, what you're talking about in your book is a lot of retro tech. And I said, it may be retro tech, but the fact is the Chinese are using that retro tech in innovative ways that we never did. And so even if it isn't new technology in some cases, for instance, a heavy lift rocket, you know, we've used to get to the moon. Of course, we dismantled ours. The Chinese just got their Long March 5B rocket going in December of last year. And now they're using it to put new systems in orbit. They're going to use it to go back to the moon. They're going to use it to get to Mars. That may be retro tech, but darn it, they're using it. And it's giving them the headlines and giving them the national prestige, which translates into national power. It means that China has a confidence that the Americans no longer have and that China looks like it's on the cutting edge of the future, which attracts more talent because they're building it and therefore the talent will come. Yeah, we cannot emphasize this enough that the establishment of new technological frontiers means there's a lot of stuff for young people to do. There's a lot of stuff for people who are mid-career looking for some way to reorient themselves to do. Right. On the other hand, what you get in the American situation, because of institutional deadlock and because of the ideology of end of history, broadly speaking, liberalism or neoliberalism, as we now call it, that is to say we just continuously adjust through negotiations what has already been done. There's nothing new to do. That means that there is nothing for young talent to do. There is nothing for right. bright minds. There is nothing for enterprising engineers to do. And right. that's going to create restlessness and it's going to create paralysis institutionally. And it's a very dangerous thing. Americans are a restless race. We do not have the problems that the Chinese do where the state has got to have great prestige or right. else it has no legitimacy. In America, the state has so much legitimacy that people don't give a damn about what's happening in reality, <laughs> which right. is the danger right. we're facing. And you and I, and uh, you say this repeatedly in the book, and we all know this, it might be the case that your opening chapter, The Space Pearl Harbor, is simply yeah. the truth about America. We're so cocksure, we're going to yeah. wait to get sucker punched before yeah. we do anything. Just can't believe that something bad could happen to us that we need to worry about. Yeah. Now, I make this point, the Space Pearl Harbor, in the book, it's Russia that does it. But as I say in that chapter, China has the same capabilities that Russia has. And so it could be that China is the one that actually delivers the sucker punch. And if it's China, it'll be even worse because they actually have sort of the technological depth to really catch up and compete long term with us after giving us that sucker punch. And, you know, the thing with China is that it's similar to Japan. Going into World War II, we looked down, America did, on Japan. And look at what happened. We condescended them. We ignored what they were saying. They were very clear. If you keep acting as you are in the Pacific, we're going to have to do something drastic to change things in our favor. Similarly, China has been very clear. America, if you continue behaving the way that you have been relative to us, we're going to have to do something drastic to ensure that what we perceive as our interests are protected. And I've been in meetings with military leaders where they're kind of laughing it off like, yeah, what are they going to do? And I'm thinking this is exactly what the military leaders going into the Second World War were saying about Japan. Yeah, what are they going to do ultimately? Well, we saw they were going to use their technology, Japan, in the case of aircraft carriers. 
years in a very innovative, unorthodox way to take them well beyond their territory and do this surprise attack on Pearl Harbor in an attempt to knock out the Americans from the Pacific. And it almost worked, by the way. Had they done that third wave of aircraft attacks, they might have managed to completely knock out Pearl Harbor as a viable base, which would have set us back significantly. Similarly, the Chinese, as well as the Russians, are looking at the satellites and going, that's a low-hanging fruit for us to pluck to really stymie the Americans. And with the Chinese in particular, we really underestimate them. We still view them as if they're this backward agrarian country, and they're not. And they could very easily knock out those satellites and really double down from there the way Japan tried to, except they're a large country, China is, and Japan was tiny, so they always had the kind of the shot clock working against them. China might just be able to stay in a fight longer because we'd have to be fighting closer to their shores anyway. And so they might be able to actually at least get into a stalemate with us. And so we need to be very cautious when China says they're doing things, given what they're investing in. That's a very scary prospect. Yeah, it is very dangerous to underestimate your enemies. Yes. If there's anything worse than underestimating your enemies, it's what our elites are. They don't even recognize it as an enemy. <laughs> yes, yes. We see here a creeping nihilism in our elites who went from China is nothing to worry about. They're either our servants or our friends because of the global economic situation. Right. To seeing all of the stuff that's happened over the last decade, especially the rise of Xi Jinping, who is a remarkable statesman, and now just completely switching to, yes, it's something awesome to behold, but there's nothing we can do about it. Right. From we don't want to to we can't. Yeah, and at least half of our political establishment, I would argue the Democrats, are more concerned about Russia than they are about China. And don't get me wrong, I'll tell you, I think Russia could be a problem because of the way we've handled them, that's forcing them to get closer to China. But the real long-term threat is China, and at least half of America's political establishment would rather be buddy-buddy with China and fight Russia in yesterday's war, rather than, you know, maybe try to get Russia to our side and fight China. And it's a problem. The worst thing that we could do for ourselves is get in this position where we're taking on two Eurasian juggernauts in China and Russia. I mean, that's a nightmare scenario. And particularly in the case of China, you know, it's not going to be them being our servants, right? It's going to be them making us into their servants. They would love get the high ground of the high-tech innovation. They'd get space to themselves. All the great innovations, the cool things that would define the next century would be done not in the United States, states as it was in the last century, but in China. And that is a nightmare scenario for anybody who's an American nationalist. Yes. And this brings us to the problem of nationalism, which used to mean a combination of three or four very important elements. We need yes. a very serious restructuring of the national security bureaucracies and to get yes. political consensus around taking space seriously. NASA is yes. a joke. It was always yes. silly, but now it's just pathetic. And as the dangers mount, it's just becoming obvious. But there's just one thing. We also need, indeed, a certain shift in what we call political culture or something like that. But that really means Americans should be really serious about if you have ambition, if you want to prove to your fellow Americans that they should admire you, applaud you, give you the headlines, the prestige, then you should do something for your country. And that means protect America from the enemy. Right. That is true for the businessmen. It is true for the intellectuals. It is true for the politicians, as it is for the military. And that is yes. not happening, as you well say, it is very much the case that people would like to keep dreaming the dream that there is no problem in China. Right. But there is. Right. That's where most of the population of the planet is and most of the trade. 
America is a sea power and America is a commercial empire. And sacrificing the sea lanes of communications, just like sacrificing the satellites and the space high ground, would be insanity. America yes. has surrendered to this kind of insanity because of the Middle East wars. There's this sort of yep. crazy idea. You are not an army country. Wake up. You are a navy, right. air power. <laughs> you should be in satellites and space lasers. Yes. That's where you yes. should be not in army and so down to this level of the equilibrium between the services the rhetoric and the money Mm -hmm. spending and the priorities at the pentagon all of it is nuts yeah that will require a lot of shifts but there are further elements of nationalism in business silicon valley is not patriotic it is not nationalistic and partly i would say it's not because they're so evil and progressive I believe they're so wokey because they too have lost faith in progress. Yes. They don't believe there's a new ground to open. There are new things to do. There are achievements that will make them proud and that will make the country proud of them. Right. So you have all of these problems that have to be dealt with and they cannot be dealt with independently. We need the industrial technological base. We need manufacturing to be high tech manufacturing, at least in part. We need political assistance and political coherence in Washington. And that would mean a shakeup that would make a lot of enemies I and mean, the pentagon is not yes. there to keep america safe the pentagon is there to be the pentagon right. getting it right. to get the mission seriously and then to get it done is going to be the work of an entire administration yes and so nationalism can do this nationalism can mean that we will take business we will take technology we will take politics we will take education we will take ambition seriously promote it reward it channel it. right it could do that but it is a generational project. Oh, it is. And your book is an early warning. We have to do this now. We have to start now. Yeah. And I tell you, I had a four-star general three weeks ago at an event that I was speaking at who wanted to have lunch with me afterward. This was in Washington, D.C. And, you know, the first thing he said to me, he said, it's a good thing you never actually were in uniform. I go, why? And he said, you would have been flattened by the bureaucracy by now with what you're talking about. I said, I figured as much. And he said, you have to think of it this way. He said, what is the role of the bureaucracy? And I said, I don't know. You tell me. And he said, well, it's to gain consensus. And he said, and how do you gain consensus in a bureaucracy? You flatten all the innovators, all of the rebels, and you squeeze them out and you make sure that there is absolutely no Billy Mitchells among them, because that's the worst thing that you want is someone who's going to challenge the consensus. And it's just funny because I never thought of it that way. But of course, I worked on the Hill and this is the same logic there. When you're in it, you don't see it necessarily. But looking at it from outside, it is a huge problem. And it is partly the nature of bureaucracy. But you're right. It is, you know, laziness or unwillingness to try new things. It's very sad. It's an inflexibility and it makes us extremely incapable of rising to the new challenge. I mean, I would actually say the China challenge is more cultural than it is anything else. It's a cultural shot across the bow of America, of Western culture. They're saying, hey, we've got a superior culture to you. We've got a superior system to you. And oh, by the way, when you look at our system, you know it's superior because look at all the high tech that we have. Look at all the innovations that we're doing. Look at all the young people of ours who are going in to STEM and coming here to create the next great innovation. Look at the fact that we might be taking the moon. Look at the fact that we might 
might be landing our people on Mars before any American can even get his space boots on. I think you're right. I think this is a generational challenge, and that is partly what my book uh, was trying to do, is kind of sound the warning early on, because it can't be done all in one administration. And we've seen how the bureaucracy, at least now, fights back against someone like a Trump who is from the outside, who is trying to shake things up. He may be heavy-handed, but he is trying to shake things up, and we see how the bureaucracy responds to that, and it isn't pretty. Yes, exactly. And it is not going to get prettier when you take on the deep state you are in for a very, very serious fight that will be very, very underhanded. As respectable as it is, it is deeply corrupt. Right. Some of it is just human nature. This is America. You've got signals intelligence and human intelligence, as you were saying before. The NSA run by the generals and the CIA run by losers. (laughs) Because we've relied on technology so much for so long with such success, because we're dominating the world in technology, technology in the world was American technology. It made for the incompetence of the CIA, for trashy people like Deutsch and Tenet and Brennan. These people were running the CIA because it was a joke and they were a joke and all the catastrophes did not matter. These were the kinds of people who could not care less if something like 9-11 happens. It's no concern to them. That's the truth of human intelligence in America. And presumably we should uh, somehow try to deal with that. But with all of these things, you could think, well, this national security bureaucracy could be shaken up. But the result would be creating so many enemies that you would need a unique vision and a lot of ambitious people who are willing and eager even to cut through this stuff and make something worthwhile and prove to the people who will be judging at the next election that you can get stuff done. Yes. That is absolutely necessary. And of course, it's part of a American spirit. America has always reacted to the corruption of Washington, D.C. with something like Donald Trump. Yes. We need an insurgency from the country to remind elites that this is a democracy and democracy the people count. That's right. If you do not ensure the safety and happiness of the people, you will get your ass handed to That's right. And better to do that through election than through war. Yes. And have enemies do that to America. Yes. But reading through your book, I was thinking about something that I'd been meaning to bring to your attention before. Yeah. There is this wonderful essay by Tom Wolfe, the great Tom Wolfe, mm. about Bob Noyce, the founder of Intel and, of course, co-founder of Fairchild Semiconductors before that. Yeah. The tinkerings of Bob Noyce. You know, he goes to see where does Bob Noyce come from? Where did all these people who made Silicon Valley, where do they come from? I think you're perfectly right to point to the fact that it's not just venture capital or libertarian individualism. It's also a lot of R&D. It's also the government at work. It's a very important thing. Yes. But I think a third element is what Tom Wolfe points to. Those people were all born into a certain Protestant way of life Yes. that pushed them in a certain direction. They had a certain kind of childhood where their own manly spiritedness made them fight against the conventions, but in the way the conventions yes. themselves guided them and led them into technology and science as yes. a way of expressing both their intelligence and their individuality. Yes. And it led to these obsessive, hardworking types yes. who didn't think they were alive if they weren't working until 2 a.m. in the morning. And those men were artists. If you look at their personality profile, they, I believe, were much similar to kind of the people we associate with the art world in terms of their manic nature and their obsessive quest for, you know, we would call it the next great product, but the next great innovation. And it was less about the money, although that was important, as it was about just getting the new next thing out. Very similar to how, you know, Michelangelo worked or how, you know, Leonardo 
Da Vinci work. These men were artists, but they were also visionaries, engineers, and it was sort of this confluence. It wasn't any one thing. And I and I think that you're absolutely correct. It was that sort of lifestyle and culture that they came from. And I worry that we may have lost it, you know, and you're absolutely correct to point out that Tom Wolfe essay. Yes, and you're right. We have lost that, but we have to think, you know, those weren't the first American adventurers. Right. These Midwestern Protestant types, they were not the same as the pilgrims. But the pilgrims too had these massive enterprises on their hands. People had never set to sea, go off and find yourself a new continent. Right. Now, these were not competent seamen. They were aiming at Virginia and ended up in Massachusetts, right. and that tells you something. Right. But it also tells you that they could get something done by their enterprise, and that that's just part of the American Store. Leap without looking. That's the phrase that I use in the book. Exactly. And that's something that readers of your book should notice how much of your book requires that people notice the danger and have faith that America can deal with this stuff if we do daring things. Right. And that's how China operates. You know, they keep throwing innovations at the wall and hoping something sticks and maybe, you know, 50 things go wrong. But if that one thing could be the next new innovation, they'll take it and then they'll spin off from there. We in America, we're so, you know, litigated. We're just a litigation crazy country. It's all this risk assessment. And it shows you why we haven't really innovated things, particularly to use a Peter Thiel term in the world of atoms. We're very good at creating things in the world of bits, but not in the world of atoms. You know, and I think the differential is beginning to show now in a place like China where they do have that leap with that looking mentality and we don't. Yeah, that's a very good point. In certain important ways in technology, there's more freedom in China than there is in America. Yeah. That's almost unthinkable, but it's also just obvious staring us in the face, not to say hitting us. Right, right. So that's something that America has to learn again. We are, in a certain sense, distracted by the political showmanship, yeah. the entertainment, the TV quality that tells us there's so much frantic energy and crisis, we have no stability. But as your book aptly points out, behind the political scene of TV, we have way too much stability and absolutely no energy left. Right. And that has to be re-energized. This is America. It's like the Federalist teaches you. You need stability and you need energy yes. in government. And those things are in a contradiction. Yes. It's very hard to work that tension in a profitable way. Yes. The only obvious solution, of course, is to realize that we may hate some of our liberal elites. We may be suspicious and angry at some of our libertarian old oligarchs, but we have a common enemy. If we can get that through our heads and understand a certain common Americanness right. that emerges in the conflict, then we might be able to get along by a common mission. That's right. And that is absolutely necessary, just like it is necessary to accept that, yes, the culture has changed. There's not a lot of these Protestant boys running around trying <laughs> to become NASA, trying to no. become Chuck Yeager or what have you. You know, that's not how it's working out. You're not going to get the next Neil Armstrong. Mm. But there are ambitious Americans. There is the spirit of adventure left and the sense that I have got to prove something to people and to myself. I've got to achieve something. Enterprise is my way forward. Yes. That has not been lost. It has to be recaptured. And we have to have faith that if you grasp as surely as Tom Wolfe grasped what the situation was then, if you grasp what the situation is now, we could influence this culture to bring out these talents and reassure them that through hard work, there will be rewards. Right. And therefore put American restlessness to better purposes right. than Twitter mobs and race riots right. or Portland madness. We got to do better than that with American restlessness. That's right. It's a real advantage we have is our restlessness. But, you know, without the proper vision and leadership and without the institutions being 
being able to absorb that, you're absolutely correct, is that we'll just tear ourselves down. And our enemies are really banking on that. I think the Chinese, as well as the Russians, have really kind of looked at us for a long time. They've marveled at us. But then they're also perplexed because at the same time that we're this dynamo, we're also like kind of a stick of dynamite about to explode. And so particularly the Chinese are looking at this and figuring out, well, how do we put pressure on the American system so much so that it implodes while we become in China the new dynamo? And Russia is not the threat China is, but they also have really studied us and I think figured out kind of where our pressure points are. And you're right. It's exemplified in terms of this energy that we have. Uh, You look at the streets, it's young people, many of whom are well-educated, supposedly, burning the cities down. In fact, you know, I have a family member who works doing security for one of the largest lobbying firms in D.C. And he told me the other day, you know, he had to close everything down because the riots were going on. He goes downstairs to the garage and he sees all of the young associates in their, you know, BMWs and Mercedes and their Porsches and they're letting in protesters and then they themselves are putting on masks and lighting up Molotov cocktails and going charging into the streets. These are our young people. These are our educated people. And so there's a lot of that energy that's being misplaced. And I think you're absolutely correct. Whereas in China, you see it being channeled at least mostly in a place that's going to benefit overall the Chinese. And uh, it just, it would be nice if we could get back to that here. Yes, the energy is there and it does not disappear if you misuse it or neglect it. It just goes kaboom. Right. You are going to have young Americans and this is a dispossessed generation. Yes. They are going to inherit a unique debt and this systemic paralysis, it seems, in the institutions. They have no ability to do anything apparently in public except take the rage out by destroying stuff rather than building anything. You know, that's an American refrain from the working class to the high tech rich people. We used to build things. Yes, yes. Now we're burning stuff down. That is indeed something that we need a reckoning on, but not a reckoning where we hate each other and try to destroy each other. A reckoning where we realize we were ignorant and arrogant, but there is much good in America. Yes. We just need to put our energy back into making institutions serve the country rather than encourage elites to exploit institutions and indeed get in bed with our enemies, especially in China, as Google and so many of these corporations are or have been trying to do. Right. And instead, they should be more patriotic. As you point out in your book, Google should be working on dual technologies that might have military applications with the Pentagon, not with Beijing. Somehow, apparently, this is not just no longer obvious, but the opposite is happening of patriotism. So we got to really get a handle on these things and to put our hopes in the fact that if we get a handle on things politically, culturally, things will gradually turn around and we can show success fairly early by doing impressive things so that there's confidence, again, building in America, that there's a future. This is what you want to bet on. This is what you want to work for. This is what you want to hope for. Yes, absolutely. Well, Brendan, it's been very good talking to you about this. And I want to thank you for your time and to remind our audience, go on Amazon, go wherever you buy your books and buy Winning Space by Brandon Weikert. You will learn about the various players in space from the smallest like Israel to the largest like China in the full range in between. And you will be learning about the possibilities that we haven't gotten to talk about in detail what it would mean to mine the moon, what it would mean to get solar energy from orbit without any of the difficulties of cloud cover, weather, climate, etc. These are the possibilities that should spark the imagination, send a new generation thinking there is much to do. We have opportunity, but we need leadership and vision. 
Thank you. All the best, Brandon. Good luck on your book tour. I hope this is going to be the success you deserve. Thank I'm glad you. to hear that the Pentagon is sending you around to spread the gospel of winning space. Yes, yes. America was all about sea power at the turn of the 20th century, and it's got to be all about space, space power. power now, and you're out there spreading the word. Thank you so much. Very good. Thank you. And I'll talk to you again. Okay. All the best, Thank Brandon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.